this Christian creation-believing scientist 400 years ago that resurrected the modern scientific method. And think with me for a moment. Evolution believes that everything is by random chance. Is that correct? Therefore, you could not possibly experiment on it because it would be constantly changing. Is that correct? It is only because 400 years ago, Christian creation-believing scientists said, God is an intelligent God. And if that is therefore true, we can, as Kepler said, think God's thoughts after him. And so, actually, you'll find out that science and the Bible are 100% compatible. My opinion on that is based on they ha both have the same author. Some of you need to <laughs> pick it up a little here, okay, folks? But you'll, you'll notice that this whole week I've been talking about Bible science. I go back and forth. You'll see me go back and forth sometimes, multiple times in one paragraph, because I think they both have the same author. And they are 100% compatible. With that in mind, let's talk about intellectual honesty. Now, yes, I am a full-time missionary. I'm a domestic missionary. I'm a foreign missionary when I'm allowed to go. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, where do I go? I go to countries around the world, starting with the United States, but Canada, the United Kingdom, Ireland, the Netherlands, Russia, um, Estonia, doesn't matter, Kazakhstan. I go to all these countries because these are all countries that today have an education system based in either a socialistic government or a communistic government. And for me, I consider them as target-rich environments. Some of y'all need to say amen there. Uh, now, why have we spent the last five days together? Think with me for just a moment. I am merely an ammunition bearer. I'm here to bring you the ammunition, but you are the ones that have to use it. Uh, could have gotten a bigger amen. I said, I'm just an ammunition bearer. I'm bringing you the ammunition, but you are the ones that have to use it. Yeah. Amen. And I have an indictment against all government-run education systems in all the countries that I go to. And that does include the U.S. What is my indictment? Now, understand, please, there are good people, there are Christians that are in the public school system as administrators and teachers scattered throughout the system. Don't misunderstand me. But my problem with government-run education is that uh, we no longer teach critical thinking. Good education requires critical thinking. Good education requires that we teach both sides of an issue with equal emphasis and then allow the student to decide which one they will believe in situations where faith is involved. Now, we today teach by memorization. Now, I'm very good at memorization. I got lots of A's to prove it and two doctorates. Hello? I'm real good at memorization. But the fact of the matter is, we're not teaching critical thinking today. That is my indictment against all the governmental schools that I will go to these various countries, South Africa, Japan, it doesn't matter. They no longer teach good educational technique. They're teaching by memorization. Now, ladies and gentlemen, when you teach by memorization, that is not education. That is indoctrination. And that's the problem we have today. And do you know the last time that creation science was taught as a credit course in an American high school public run? No. Late 40s in Texas. We've been teaching evolution only in our public schools. Now, some states continue to allow the concepts of creation to be mentioned as an alternative. The best state was probably Kentucky. They were the ones that I know of, at least, that did the best job until recently, and even they have given it up now. But we're teaching just one side of the issue. That's not education. That's indoctrination. And let's talk about the definition of science versus what is science. Now, the word science itself, you have to understand something. This is an untranslated word. It's the ancient word for knowledge. Science, the word scientia, is knowledge. Now, I'd like you to think about this. There are many, many different definitions of the word science. If you went to an unabridged dictionary, you could find probably a hundred definitions for the word science used in many, many different ways. One general definition is that, that science is merely the body of knowledge. And scientists, who are they? They are people who simply 
study and acquire and teach knowledge, you see. And the fact of the matter is that anybody can be a scientist. Hello? All you have to do is seek knowledge. Now, with that in mind, there's a difference between the definition of science, the word, and what is science. So let's think about what is science. Science is that which is observable, that which is subject to experimentation, that which is verifiable, and that which is repeatable. As you're going to find out, science is a really neat thing, but it's also very limited at the same time. Now, evolutionists, well, they say that they are doing science. The fact of the matter is, no evolutionist designs any experiment assuming that the theory of evolution is true. Because if they did, they couldn't get consistent results. Think with me for just a moment. It has to be observable, subject to experimentation, verifiable, repeatable. Evolutionists believe that everything must be naturalistic, mechanistic. They are existentialists. That means that they only believe in that which exists. And they deny the supernatural. They deal only with the natural. Now, I would like to tell you that a good scientist never would limit themselves to saying, oh, I won't think about that. I won't observe that. I won't experiment on that. Because that, of course, is quarantining your brain. Hello? Now, what are the steps in the modern scientific method? Well, number one, you define a problem or a question, such as there was a time when we decided we were going to go to the moon. Well, the question was then, how do you do it, get there, and come back? Alive. Come on, folks, it was never designed to be a suicide mission. Hello? So the idea was, how do you get to the moon and come back? Alive. And so what did we do? Well, we gathered information and resources. We made observations. And, of course, we said, well, you can't drive there, you can't fly there, so it looks like the best method's going to be a rocket, right? And so what did we do? Well, we went ahead and we developed the hypothesis of, of rockets and, and how they would be used and how to guide them and so forth. Then we did controlled experimentation. Now, some of you may remember this. We had one rocket called Vanguard. We blew more of those things up than anything else we've ever blown up, I think. It was not a good rocket. But of course, blowing up enough rockets, you finally figure out how to make a good one. Hello? And then we analyze the data. We either reject it or accept it. Now, when it comes to science, if you, if you actually analyze the data, but you either reject it or accept it, but if you do many experiments, it may become a generalization. And a generalization becomes what's referred to in science as a law. Now, a law in science is very different than a law in society. For example, I've been noticing the lack of traffic that I would normally expect this time of year here. You know, and I, you know what I'm talking about. Um, but let me give you a little example. What if at 2 a.m. tomorrow morning, I'm doing 80 miles an hour down Tamiami Trail, and there happens to be a stoplight that turns red in front of me, and I don't even slow down? I'm not saying you should do this now, you understand? But I don't even slow down. I blow through that light. Now, please tell me, if there's nobody there to see me do it, nobody's going to stop me and give me a ticket, and I don't hit anything, can I break the law and get away with it? Well, come on, folks. In society, you can break a law and get away with it. However, in science, you cannot break a law. The law of gravity has had million experiments Never once has it behaved in any other way, and it cannot be broken. The laws of thermodynamics, the laws of motion, the laws of heat cannot be broken. They work exactly the same way every single time. And so a law in science is very different. And think with me for a minute. You are all familiar with the law of gravity, but please tell me, have we ever been outside the solar system to test it? No, we've never been outside the solar system, period. The fact of the matter is, we believe that it does work the same way everywhere in the universe by observation of objects in space, but we've never been there to uh, test it. Is that correct? It's a generalization. And we make reasonable future predictions. Now, I was just mentioning gravity. You've seen me using this laser. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I believe that if I let go of this laser, it's going to fall down. 
Now, why is that? Because every other time I've ever done it, it's always fallen down. I have never seen it fall up. And based upon that truth, I make a prediction about the future. I believe that if tomorrow I were to let go, it will fall down. That is a reasonable prediction based on science. Is that correct? And finally, we will check and verify the results. We will continue to experiment. And we have done many experiments on the same thing years and years and years apart using new technology, new techniques, but laws always work the same regardless. Now, what happens when we talk about science and we deal with the question of origins? Now, the questions about origins, remember that's, did we come about through a random chance process of evolution or did we come about through a complete, whole, perfect creation at some time in the past, correct? So, questions about origins cannot be solved using the modern scientific method. I've talked about this a little bit already, but think with me. Why is that? Because origins are not observable. They are not, excuse me, subject to experimentation. They are not verifiable. They are not repeatable. Again, no scientist can get in a time capsule, go back in time, and see it happen. You know, evolutionists believe in evolution, but no evolutionists can go back in time. You know, time travel is really neat in science fiction movies, but it doesn't work in reality. And they cannot go back and see it occur. They cannot go back and test it. We cannot change it, because if it occurred, it only occurred once. Same thing is true for the creationists. We can't go back and watch God create the universe. It would be very presumptuous of us today to stick out a test tube and say, okay, God, make something here in front of me so I can prove you can create it. Come on, folks, that would be presumptive, don't you think? And there are questions that should not be addressed, should not be answered using the modern scientific method. Now, let me explain what I'm talking about. For example, political questions like who should be president? Believe me, if that was a scientific question, we'd have a different result. <laughs> or... What about moral questions like, should I smoke cigarettes, do drugs, drink alcohol, engage in premarital relations, and so forth? These are moral questions, and you cannot use the modern scientific method to address these questions. And finally, I'll point out directional questions like, should I get married, go to college, join the military? These are questions you do not answer using the modern scientific method. And so I want you to take a look at this illustration. Now, here you see this pedestal. And uh, we can tell that this guy is a scientist right here because he's holding a test tube, correct? <laughs> now, down here, there are people looking admiringly up at this scientist. And I want to debunk what people think about scientists. Now, I've been a scientist all my life. But people look at scientists. They put scientists on pedestals and say, oh, he's a scientist. I tell people, never put a scientist on a pedestal. They'll just fall off and get hurt. But people have a false concept about what science are. And, and the most, well, commonly believed things about scientists are, number one, unbiased. Number two, uh, totally objective. Uh, number three, absolutely infallible. And number four, always wears a white lab coat. Well, that's what people think about scientists. But what is the truth about scientists? This illustration shows you a... Uh, a scientist. He's a real scientist. In this case, we know that he is an evolutionary believing scientist. Remember, science doesn't say anything. You know, I, I, I just have been so upset the last year about we're going to follow the science. Science doesn't lead. Science doesn't talk. There are evolutionary believing scientists and there are creation believing scientists. But science is neutral. Now, we do know that this guy is an evolutionist, and I'll explain why. You see, I have a proposition for you. I'm not a gambling man. Do we understand that? But I have a proposition for you. We understand the difference here? Here's my proposition. You let me go into the office of any man or woman for five minutes. Let me ask them some basic, simple questions, and I will come out after five minutes, and I will tell you what they believe, why they believe it, and the decisions they will make on major issues. How can I do that in only five minutes? It's really very simple. I walk into the office. I look at the degrees in the universities that uh, they earn those degrees at. 
I look at the awards that have been given by various scientific societies. I look at the books on their shelf and who are the authors. And these are all evolutionary authors, evolutionary university, evolutionary society. And so I know he's an evolutionist. Therefore, I know the decisions he will make on major issues. It's kind of funny when a creation scientist walks into the office of an evolutionist who's not expecting you. I'm serious. We were looking for a university for our daughter to go to, and I, I went to a, believe it or not, supposedly Christian college in Pennsylvania. And uh, my daughter went to some places to kind of look at see what she thought about it. And I went over to the science guys, and, and uh, I walked in, and I found out that they were all theistic evolutionists. They thought that uh, us creation scientists were nuts. And they believed that God used an evolutionary process to create what we see today. They all believed in an old earth, old universe, and so forth. And needless to say, my daughter did not attend that university. But it was kind of interesting. There was a guy in an office next to his classroom that was empty, so I knew he wasn't teaching. And I saw him working at the desk, and, and I went in, and I introduced myself. You know, I'm Dr. McMurtry. I'm a biblical scientific creationist. And the guy actually started trembling. <laughs> and after five minutes, I left because I was afraid he was going to have a heart attack. But what are the truths, the four truths about scientists? Well, number one, everybody is biased. All you have to do is look at his books and you know that he is biased. I have a friend who puts it this way, everybody's biased. The question is, which bias is the best bias to be biased with? And that's absolutely true. Now, think about it. At one time, I was a biased evolutionist. But because I was willing to learn, I was willing to change. Did you hear that? If you're not willing to learn, you will never be willing to change. And I was willing to learn, and therefore I was willing to change. And today, going from 100% biased as an evolutionist, I am now 100% biased as a creationist, as a Christian. But everybody's biased. The question is, which bias is the best bias to be biased with? Secondly, scientists are not objective. Well, think with me for a moment. Everybody's got a bias. Nobody can be absolutely objective. Now, there are men and women who do a better job of it than others. understand that. But nobody is 100% totally objective. It's a laboratory ideal, but it doesn't even exist in the laboratory. I would also point out that, well, scientists are not infallible because we are human. Hello? Come on, you had noticed we are human. Okay, I know I've been called an old fossil, but really we are human, okay? But the fact of the matter is, we're not infallible. If I make a mistake, and I am perfectly capable of making one, but if I make a mistake and then I find out that I did make a mistake, I will immediately correct it. But I'm not infallible, hello? And as you have noticed, we don't always wear a white lab coat. Now, I want to talk with you for a moment about the various methods by which humans solve problems. This is not a complete list, but I want to talk with you for a moment about how humans solve problems. Now, how do we do it? Well, one method of solving problem is called the democratic method. We vote. Sometimes voting creates a problem. But in theory, it's supposed to correct a problem. And I said that's in theory. Or... We can use an appeal to higher authority. We have courts, judges, lawyers, juries, and we appeal to a higher authority, to magistrates, etc., right? That's another way in which we can solve problems. A third method by which we can solve problems is, of course, the scientific method. It's the one I was trained in. It's a good method, but remember, it is limited. Science is limited to the here and now, making reasonable predictions about the future. When we deal with the historical sciences, now you have to remember there are different sciences. We're dealing with physics, we're dealing with chemistry. That's one kind of a science. That's operational science. But when we're dealing with the historical sciences of archaeology, paleontology, uh, geology, think about it. We cannot go back and see it happen. We cannot go, say, for instance, in, in archaeology or anthropology, we cannot go back and see people actually living as they lived 800 years ago. We look at the buildings. We look at the art. Maybe we have some written records and we have tools and so forth. We make reasonable assumptions about what happened, but we never saw it. 
That's the problem with historical sciences. Now, with that in mind, these are three very good ways in which we can solve problems if they're applicable to that problem. But I'd like to show you the picture of a problem and then ask you, uh, what method would you use to correct this problem? Are you ready? You don't sound ready. Are you ready? Okay, here's the problem. That's a photo I took six years ago. Now, please tell me, how do you solve that problem? Well, I think you need a really good agronomist and a really good civil engineer. How about you? But while solving problems is important, I am much more concerned about this. What are the methods that we can use to determine what is truth? You see, I want to know what the truth is. Even when I was an evolutionist, I was seeking truth. Now, even when I was an evolutionist, I thought I had found truth in evolution because that's all they taught me. But because I was willing to learn, I was willing to change. And therefore, when I learned things, uh, well, I found out that although I had been seeking truth, thought I had found truth in evolution, that I had not. And because I was willing to learn, I was willing to change. Are you with me? So I am much, much more concerned about what is truth than how you simply solve a problem. Now, there are five methods by which you and I can determine what is true. For example, we can use the scientific method. As I've said, it's a good method, but it is limited to the here and now and reasonable things about the future. What is the second method by which we can determine what is truth? Well, of course, there is the logical method. Now, I can disprove evolution from any method you choose, okay? I can do it mathematically, I can do it philosophically, I can do it logically, I can do it from physical evidence. I can do it from any of those fields, folks, I assure you. But tell me something about logic. Is there any reason to believe something that is patently illogical? Okay, I'll ask that question again. Is there any reason to believe in anything that is patently illogical? No. An evolution is, it is irrational, unreasonable illogical and unscientific. You could have had a bigger amen there. I only got, I only got three. Gee. Well, the third method by which we can determine what is true is, of course, the mathematical method. And that's for very good reasons. You see, in the secular world, in the secular world, mathematics is the purest form of proof. Because it doesn't matter what country you live in, where you were born, what language you speak, 2 plus 2 is 4. Unless, of course, you're dealing with accounting. <laughs> Apparently some of you are not familiar on how to hire an accountant. It's a simple test. You see, when you want to have an accountant and you want to hire an accountant, what you do is you advertise, I'm looking for an accountant, and then, of course, people come in to apply for the job. And you simply ask each person, what's 2 plus 2? And he says 4, and you say thank you. If we're interested, we'll call you back. And what's 2 plus 2? And you say 4, and we say thank you. If we're interested, we'll call you back. And then I ask you, what's 2 plus 2? And you say, what do you want it to be? <laughs> You're hired. <laughs> but mathematics is the purest form of proof in the secular world. Why? Because the laws of mathematics are. They are universal. They are invariant. They are I'm having a little, I need to change my battery. Uh, pacemaker too, I don't know. Um, they are absolute and they are abstract. And for that reason, mathematics is the purest form of proof in the secular realm. The fourth method of proof by which we can determine what is true is called the statistical or probability method. Now, think with me about statistics and probability for just a moment. If the odds of something happening is one out of one, it's going to happen. Is that correct? That is a 100% surety. If it's one out of one, it's going to happen. But if I take a coin out of my pocket, throw it up in the air, and catch it, theoretically, it's going to be heads or tails 50-50. Now, that's not exactly true, but it's close enough. But that means that if I say it's going to be heads or tails, I've got a one out of two possibility of being correct. Is that right? By, by guessing, right? Now, I'd like you to be honest. Again, I do not condone gambling. I'm in no way doing that. But I'd just like you to be honest, okay? If the chance was something like one out of two, 
you might maybe possibly consider, well, making the choice. Is that correct? Come on, just being honest, right? One out of two, 50-50, you might. Is that right? But please tell me, what if the odds were one out of 10,000? that only once out of 10,000 times you would win, that 9,999 times out of 10,000 you would lose. Please tell me, I don't know about you, I'm starting to back up. Hello? Right? Now here in the state of Florida, we have a tax on stupidity. It's called the Florida Lottery. Did you ever look up the odds of winning the Florida Lottery? One out of 175 million every week, 52 weeks a year. That's why we call it a tax on stupidity. Hello? Now, think with me for just a moment. I want you to take a look at what are the odds of evolution being true on Earth even once? Now, I'm going to suggest that you get a piece of paper, business card. I don't care what you've got. Just any piece of paper or, or if you can tear something in half and share it with the person next to you and so forth. But just for a moment, I want you to get out a piece of paper because I want you to be able to wow your friends, neighbors, colleagues, family members tomorrow, okay? Now, I just want to start by reminding you, if you were to write the number 10 with a little 2 above the upper right-hand corner, we call that 10 squared, which is 10 times 10, but it equals the number 100. Is that correct? And again, this is just a reminder. I'm not you know, this, just as a reminder, if you were to write the number 10 with a little 3 above the upper right-hand corner, that would be 10 cubed, correct? Or 10 times 10 times 10, but it equals the number 1,000. This is called scientific notation. It's a way of writing really big numbers in a little bit of space. But notice that the number above the upper right-hand corner is equal to the number of zeros. Okay? Right? Two zeros, three zeros, right? Now, would you please write the number 10 to the 25th power? 10 with a little 25 above the upper right-hand corner. Now, that is the number of stars in the known universe. That's not the entire number of stars. That's just the ones we know about. There are more. Hello. And the Bible tells me that God named each and every one of them with its own individual name. Yeah. Now, uh, if you write the number uh, 10, only this time write the number 80 above the upper right-hand corner. That's a 1 followed by 80 zeros. That is equal to the number of electrons in the known universe. That's not all the electrons. That's just the ones we know about. Now, write the number 10 and put the number 97 above the upper right-hand corner. That is the total number of subatomic particles in the known universe. Now, it's not all the subatomic particles in the universe. It's just the ones we know about. Now, what is the chance that evolution can be true on Earth even once? A very, very famous evolutionary-believing astronomer, Sir Fred Hoyle. Now, astronomers are used to looking at really big numbers. Are you with me? They're used to big, long distances, lots of stars, etc., right? He looked at the possibility of evolution being true even once, and he said the possibility of evolution being true even once on Earth was the same as a tornado going through a junkyard assembling a Boeing 747 ready to fly. Also, the same probability that all the proteins in one single cell could come about by random chance. Now, to know what that number is, please write the number 10 one more time. And above the upper right-hand corner, please write the number 40,000. That's a one followed by... Oh, by the way, if you want to write 40,000 zeros, we'll wait. <laughs> Guess not, huh? What is the chance of evolution being true even once? Zero. Once something goes beyond the chance of 10 to the 50, 10 to the 100th power, it's simply impossible. 10 to the 40,000th buries evolution. But there is one last method I want to share with you about how we can determine what is true. It's called the Berean method. It comes from Acts 17.11. The Apostle Paul commends the people who live in the community of Berea. Why? Because they, they tested everything they heard against the Word of God. And if it didn't line up, they patently rejected it, period. So my challenge for you tonight is this. Are you Bereans? Okay, I'll ask that question just one more time. 
Everything they heard, they tested against the Word of God. If it didn't line up with the Word of God, they patently rejected it. Are you going to be Bereans? I'm so glad to hear it. Now, remember what I said earlier. Now, you can tell this is an evolutionist because he's got his arms folded and he's grumpy. <laughs> this, of course, is a Christian, a creationist scientist down here. Um, but notice what we're trying to point out is we all have the exact same evidence. The difference is our interpretation of that evidence. The evolutionist picks up a fossil bone and says, oh, hundreds of millions of years. When I was an evolutionist, I did the same thing. But today I pick up the exact same bone and I say, aha, creation. Same bone, two different interpretations. The question becomes, which one is the more reasonable, the more logical, the more based in science? Now, remember, what we're looking at, well, what is your foundation determines what you believe about various social issues. Now, I've talked about worldview, a worldview like a lens through which you see the world, and the shape of that lens is dependent upon what you believe about creation or evolution. And so the foundation, creation or evolution, determining the shape or the prescription of your lens determines how you look at various social issues. Now, think for just a moment. If our minds are conditioned by the thoughts of men and women, then what's going to happen? We're going to believe in evolution. We're going to believe and accept homosexuality, promiscuity, abortion, euthanasia, relative standards. We're going to accept socialism, Marxism, and anarchy. Indeed, promote it. We're going to believe in naturalism and perhaps the New Age movement, and we are going to worship Gaia, the mother goddess, Earth. But that's what happens when people allow their minds to be conditioned by the thoughts of men and women. But what happens if we allow our thinking to be conditioned by the Word of God? Well, when that happens, we believe in creation, because without creation, there is no Christianity. And we understand family values, the value of human life, which is infinite and eternal. We understand absolutes right and wrong. We understand government under God. We practice good science and we properly care for the creation, but we don't hug trees. You know, I believe in saving the whales because we shouldn't intentionally cause the extinction of a creature that God created, but I'm a lot more concerned about babies. Hello? In my book, which you, some of you have gotten on creation, I have a chapter on Christian stewardship. God calls us to be good stewards of the creation. But what that means is we're to be good managers of the resources that he has given to us. Think of the stories of Jesus taught in the parables of the master who left servants with talents, went away, and then came back. And he judged them based upon not how much they had accomplished with what they had been given. He judged them based on the faithfulness of each servant. If one got five and got five, he was equally good as the one that got two and made two. But the one who buried it in the ground was cast into utter darkness. Is that right? So they were not judged for the amount that they made. They were judged for equal faithfulness. Is that correct? And we're to be good stewards. As a matter of fact, I pointed out a little earlier this week. I'm Scottish. Hello. You may not know about the McMurtrys, but we're a small, small sept of the clans, of the Stuarts of Butte. But that's a sept of the royal house of Stuart in Scotland doesn't make me special, I assure you, in any way. But the word I mentioned there, the stewards, came from the fact that the kings of Scotland were to be the stewards of Scotland. It's a corruption of the word steward. And God says we are to be good stewards, wise users of the resources, not preservationists, but conservationists. You see, environmental terrorists, evolutionists, they believe in preservation. They don't want you to cut a tree. They make trees more important than people. That's, that's preservation. Preservation kills things. But God calls us to be good conservationists, which is the wise use, but it is the use of the resources done wisely. Hello? And so we're to take proper care of the creation. Now, I'd also like to point out to you, 
Here I have summarized the first 11 chapters of Genesis in terms of the major topic of each chapter. And I want to point out to you that the first 11 chapters are the foundation. The rest of the Bible is structure. Think with me about how you build a house. Now when you build a house, let's think about this. The first thing you do is you build the roof first, right? Come on, folks. The first thing you do when you build a house is you build a roof first, right? Oh, y'all are not thinking about this in a clear, linear, logical way. The first thing you do when you build a house is you build the roof first. That way, when you put the shingles on, if somebody falls off, they don't get hurt. <laughs> and then, of course, you lift up the roof and you stick the walls in underneath, right? Oh, come on, I appeal to you. Is that not where the expression to raise the roof came from? <laughs> and then you slide the foundation in underneath. Is that correct? Come on, you're not going to buy this, are you? <laughs> No, when you build a house, what do you do? You build the foundation first, then you put the sticks and the bricks, is that correct? You build the foundation first, then you build the structure on top of it, is that correct? And God is a perfect builder. Now see, that was your point to say a big amen there. I said God is a perfect builder. And, well, what does he do? The first 11 chapters of Genesis are the foundation. The rest of the Bible is the structure. It's the sticks and the bricks. There's not one significant Christian doctrine that does not first start in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. I would, I would challenge you to name one. But tonight, I'm just going to give you a sample. This is not all the significant Christian doctrines that start in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, but to prove my point that every single significant Christian doctrine starts in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Let's just take a look. So here's Genesis, and these are the first 11 chapters from creation, Adam and Eve, the fall, Cain and Abel, etc. And let's start with marriage. Now I did a presentation on marriage Sunday night. I would remind you that was, I only did 60% of the message. The rest of it's on the DVD. Um, I left a lot out. But marriage is certainly something we find in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Is that correct? So if we want to know what is the foundation of marriage, where do we look? We look in chapter 2, is that correct? When God performs the first marriage. When Adam receives his wife as the perfect gift, is that correct? But what if we want to know about clothing? Now, for instance, there is a biblical uh, concept of proper clothing. And where do we find that? Well, again, we find that in chapter 3. What about uh, sin, good and evil? Where do we find out about that? Well, we find out about that in chapter 3. You start to see how we're building here, folks? Now, what about the sanctity of the life of mankind? That essential Christian doctrine, where do we find it? Well, we find it in chapter 9, immediately after the flood. What about uh, the death penalty for taking the human life? Well, of course, again, that also comes from Genesis chapter 9, when God transfers the death penalty from him dealing with people to us dealing with people as his judges and courts on the earth. What about man's separation from God? You're not God. You're never going to be God. He is completely separate. He is the creator. You are the creature. And we have a creature-creator relationship with him. But we find out about that, of course, in chapter 3. What about the need for redemption? Well, we find out about that in chapter 3. What about the mandate to have children? Uh, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, I know the correct answer to this. But I, I, do, do any of you remember the first six months of your salvation? You know, I, whenever it occurred, whether it was as a child and a young adult or older adult, so do, do any of you remember that first six, 12 months of your salvation experience? And you were asking a lot of questions, is that right? You know, because you were learning at a really fast rate, is correct? And of course, the same thing is true with me. And right after I became a Christian, I'm up late one night, and I'm asking God, why children? Now, ladies and gentlemen, understand something. I'm going to tell you what I heard from God. Right Now you will judge whether what I was hearing was God or whether it was indigestion. Hello? But this is what I heard from God. God gives us children so that we will know what it is like being Him having to deal with us. <laughs> but of course you will also find it in Malachi 2.15. God gives us children so that we will raise up godly offspring who will raise up godly offspring, who will raise up godly offspring. 
But the mandate to have children is in two chapters. It is in chapter 1 and in chapter 9, after the flood and the repopulation of the earth. What about man's stewardship of the earth? I was just talking about stewardship, the, the conservation, not the preservation. Well, that's found in chapter 1. What about divine justice, eternal punishments, and rewards? Well, of course, we find out about those in chapter 4. Or what about different rules regarding how humans are to treat each other and how humans are to treat animals? You know, God is concerned with the animals. They're not people, but God is concerned about them. If a sparrow does not fall without his knowledge, he's certainly concerned about them. Would you agree? And he has rules for how we are to treat each other and how we are to treat animals. We are never to intentionally hurt an animal simply for the purposes of causing pain. Hello? Thank you, Dr. Tom. I thought you'd like that one. <laughs> but, but God has rules about this. We're to take good care of them. We're never to cause pain intentionally, solely for the purposes of causing pain. And we are to use them, but we are not to abuse them. But think with me, where are all these rules? Well, actually, they're in four different chapters. They're in 1, 3, 8, 9. I think God puts a little emphasis on this, don't you? And how about God is separate from his creation? Now, the big fancy word for this is God is transcendent. He is not a part of the creation. He is outside of the creation. He is the one who created it. He is not bound by it. He, he is not subject to time or place. Well, where do we find out about that? Well, of course, we find out about that in chapter 1. What about the character of God? Well, the character of God is revealed to us in two chapters, in 1 and 4. How about the promise of a Savior? Well, again, that we have, well, here in chapter 3. These are just some of the essential Christian doctrines that start in the first 11 chapters of Genesis we could continue all night, I think, frankly, but you start to get the idea that is the foundation. The rest of the Bible are the sticks and the bricks. Now, we're going to close my part of this tonight by just two more slides, well, ending with two slides in particular, but on our way to those last two slides, I want you to remember, it is the foundation that determines how you think about various social issues. So let us say that if you believe in evolution, you believe that man is the measure of himself, that man is the final authority, that man decides what is truth. You believe in millions and billions of supposed years, and because of this, what happens? Well, we have school violence and lawlessness. We have homosexual behavior, pornography, abortion, euthanasia, and we could keep going. But if, on the other hand, your foundation is based upon the knowledge of God's word, that you understand that it was all created in six literal days, that God's word is authority and truth. Then you understand that divine laws, proper marriage, standards of conduct, meaning of life, etc. Is that correct? But ladies and gentlemen, what happens when we allow what I will call evolutionary termites to come in and destroy the creation foundation? You see, evolutionists know this, whether you do or not. Evolutionists know that if they can destroy the creation foundation, Christianity will fall. And so, it, what happens if we allow what I would call here evolutionary termites to come in and destroy the creation foundation? When you destroy the creation foundation, the whole thing crumbles. And the last two slides that I want to show you tonight are based upon this. The first slide is, what is the problem? The second slide is, what is the solution? So, what is the problem? The problem is found in Psalm 11.3. If you turn to Psalm 11.3, it tells us that righteous people have a foundation, but if that foundation is broken, righteous people are without hope. That's the problem. And it's illustrated here by these two castles. Please analyze these two castles with me very carefully. Notice we have the white castle here. That's the good guys, obviously. Come on, Western movies. And above this castle, which is white, based on a foundation of creation, God's, worth, God's word determines what is truth, we have the flag of Christianity, correct? And on the castle, there are five uh, people here. Now, on the left, we have, of course, the guys in black. Uh, this is the castle of the atheist, 
flying the flag of secular humanism. The foundation is evolution, and that man decides what is true. Notice again, above the castle of secular humanism, which the Supreme Court of the United States has declared to be a religion. Well, we have guys occupying the castle here, and above that, balloons with various social issues like school violence, pornography, and so forth, correct? Now let's analyze the Christian castle for just a moment. Now there are five guys. Let's take a look. The guy at the top is asleep. Now how many of you know Christians that their eyes are open, but they're asleep? Okay, how many of you would admit that you know people like this, the eyes are open, but they're asleep, and if you're unwilling to raise your hand, at least blink your eyes? Notice the second Christian. He is very happy. Hands are raised. He's joyful. He's praising God. But notice that he has his cannon pointed into absolutely open space. He is accomplishing nothing. Now, how many of you know Christians that are very happy, very active, but are accomplishing nothing? Yeah. Huh? Notice the third Christian has his cannon pointed at another Christian. Pastor Bill, how many times have we walked into a church and seen cannons pointed across the aisles? For, well, anyway, he's shaking his head, yes. Uh, um, notice the fourth Christian here has his cannon pointed at his own foundation. This is the guy who compromises on the age of the earth and universe, believes in millions and billions of years, and by doing so, destroys his own foundation. Now, the fifth Christian, again, Smiling face, hands raised, he's very happy because what has he done? He's actually popped one of those balloons. He's actually accomplished something. That's good, right? But let me ask you a question, folks. Now, again, you know that I've been going to Russia for 26 years. Um, what if, well, I, I know you're all against abortion, correct? Yes. That didn't sound like everybody answered their question. I said, you all are against abortion, correct? Yes. Oh, praise God. Of course, it's still common practice in many countries today, including Russia. But what would happen if tomorrow I could go to Russia? What if tomorrow at noon I became the new Tsar of Russia? The word in Russian, Tsar, simply means ferio or king in English. But what if I were to resurrect the monarchy? Tomorrow I became the Tsar of Russia. And at noon tomorrow I signed a piece of paper, an executive order. And I outlawed all abortions in Russia. The legal ones and the illegal ones. Because you see, a Tsar has absolute 100% authority. Period. So what if I sign a paper tomorrow eliminating all abortions, legal or illegal, in the country of Russia? Please tell me what would be the situation in Russia concerning the subject of abortion 40 years from tomorrow? Think about it. What would the situation be in Russia 40 years from tomorrow? Abortion would be right back. Because 40 years from tomorrow, I'll be dead. The piece of paper I signed will be meaningless. Think with me. Abortion is not a new issue. Throughout history, people have aborted babies. Remember that, that I can take you to museums around the world, show you tools used to do abortions 2,500 years ago. There is nothing new about this. Remember that every generation must determine its morality. No generation can inherit the mores of a previous time period, if you'll follow me, no generation can inherit the morality of a previous generation. Every generation must decide for itself when it comes to morality. Ethics are universal from generation to generation, but moral things have to be decided in each generation. And 40 years from tomorrow, we will be right back where we are today. We have to fight it every single generation, and there's nothing new about it. But notice something about the castle of the secular humanists, the evolutionists. Did you notice? Yes, we have these guys right here, three of them with their cannons. Notice they are not shooting at balloons above the castle of Christianity. There aren't any. 
because for them everything is okay. Where do they have their cannons pointed? Their cannons are pointed at the creation foundation because they know if they destroy the creation foundation they destroy Christianity. But notice right up here, see these two? They're blowing up new balloons. Oh, yeah. Well, this is the problem. What is the solution? This illustrates the solution. We find it in Isaiah 58.12. In Isaiah 58.12, re rebuild the ancient foundations. Rebuild the ancient walls. And notice what we have here. Notice that all the Christians, regardless of what flavor they may be, are working together for the kingdom of God. They're not fighting each other. Now, some of them, some of them, are shooting at the issues. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if God has called you to work on a particular issue, you work on that issue. Did you hear me? I'll repeat that. If God has called you to work on a particular social issue, you work on that issue. Amen? But notice that there are also Christians down here who are destroying the evolution foundation. That's what I do. And notice what happens. When you destroy the evolution foundation, the castle of secular humanism starts to crumble, and people, notice, they're trying to escape, and some of them will get saved. Hello? And there are those Christians who are rebuilding the creation foundation, as you see here. Now, we need both. But I'm in the catalog you know, of people who, I'm destroying the evolution foundation. I'm rebuilding the creation foundation. That's what I'm called to do. But we need both. And if God has called you to work on a social issue, you work on that issue. So I hope that as a closing uh, time frame here, it's our, our last moment to be with you before Pastor Bill comes up. He's going to be coming to talk with you. The quartet's going to be coming. And, and they've been really good, haven't they, folks? Boy, that was pathetic. <laughs> I've said they've been really good, haven't they, folks? Yeah. Now, I hope that you can see what we're trying to wrap up our time these five days with this presentation to show you the serious importance of what this is really all about. Again, I'm only an ammunition bearer, but I'm here to give you the ammunition, but you are the ones that have to use it. Amen? Thank you. If you would like to know more about the Lord Jesus Christ, you may contact us at the church website, gospelbaptistchurch.com, or you can go to Facebook and type in Gospel Baptist Church Bonita Springs, Florida. Also, you could call the church office at 239-947-1285. Thank you, and God bless.